AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for May 10th, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today, we're joined by Jim Clausing online. Welcome, Jim. It's good to be back. It's good to hear from you, and, and uh, may your UPSs be with you. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and here we have uh, Matt Kaiser. Welcome, Matt. Hey, Brian. How's it going? Are you a little weary from doing puzzles? Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. I didn't want to admit it, but, but yes. We'll get to talk about that a little bit later. Looking forward to it. And uh, welcome, John. I'm here. Yet again. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> and I'm Brian Rexrode. So, John, let's go to you first. Okay. And um, image magic. Image magic. So, this one's Remote being. code execution. Yes. Uh, you RCE, had to explain this to me. So. Yeah, RCE <laughs> is an acronym for remote code execution. So, image magic is um, kind of like a, a library and piece of software that's used to manipulate images from one file to another format or to resize images or to do other kinds of visual effects with images. Um, it's used a lot in a lot of other open source projects for various functions. So maybe you have a, uh, a website and it's got something where you can upload an image and they mm -hmm. might want to crop it to a certain size or make a thumbnail or do things like that, right? Mm -hmm. They're calling this vulnerability image tragic. That's the one they're, you know, they got to have a fancy name for everything. Mm -hmm. It's not uh, that much of a far leap from the actual name of the, the product. There are patches available for it now. If you are compromised by this or you have this vulnerability. This is used in a lot of other open source projects, so it's sometimes tricky to know if they're using image magic underneath or the libraries underneath. PHP, for one, actually has it as a library within the PHP source code library as well. You know, a lot of people use the PHP library functions to access mm -hmm. image magic, so you would need to make sure that all those hooks in between are cleaned up along the way. So basically, the way this works is kind of similar to shell shock, if we remember how that worked, where if you could inject some commands, like mm -hmm. shell commands, uh, into uh, the program, you could get it to execute those commands. And what they've discovered is there's this remote code execution vulnerability with certain file formats that when image magic goes to parse the image file, so if you can upload a rogue image to the web server and get it to try to create a thumbnail or do whatever it's gonna try to do to it, in the process of image magic opening it, um, if there's these embedded kind of tags in there that they're not pro image magic is not properly parsing, you can get it to execute those commands. I think it's Cloudflare actually had a decent write-up on this. Uh, there's a, a couple other people who have written up some articles on this one as well. But there's some examples here of when they use the fill function uh, and they're passing in a URL. And I guess maybe they added that in so that you could fill using a URL pointing to another image and you know, mm -hmm. fill on a pattern, but they're not properly parsing it here. So it's filling in with an image, but then it's also going doing a wget to go get a Python script, and then it goes and executes that Python script, which creates a backdoor web shell. Uh, and they have a couple other examples of that kind of thing that people are actually using in the wild. So this is not something that is just discovered and people aren't really yeah, leveraging it. It's not just yet. a vulnerability. Actually this is, there's actually actors out there who are actively looking for notably like upload.php existing on web servers. So they're looking for those types of things using Google and other mm -hmm. just traditional scanning methods, trying to find 
if anybody has any of these potentially vulnerable ways to upload an image and have image magic try to process it. And if so, you know, they could get a backdoor web shell on the machine. It'll run under probably the effective user rights of probably the web server process, like right. Apache or whatever's running. But still, that's enough to give you a backdoor, and then you mm -hmm. might be able to do something else. You know, you get a shell command on there, and you can do whatever you want. So there are some actors out there that are currently trying to leverage this. So uh, uh, it's an important one to go take a look at. Um, yeah. Because pretty much every Linux web server, especially all of those LAMP type of deployments have image magics installed somewhere underneath. It's in there somewhere. It's just yeah. a matter of whether they're actually actively Yeah, whether using the it software you it's have is going to try to trigger and use it right. um, or not. Right. Yeah, you know, we predicted that there, we were going to see more cases like this where there are, you know, vulnerabilities that have widespread impact. And, uh, you know, it seems like this is potentially an area, not this specific thing, but, you know, an area of research that is, it seems like there's been good work done to determine the dependencies on libraries to be able to determine you know what packages you need to run things but to be able to translate a vulnerability into the impact on applications you know it, it it's a sort of a bottom-up versus top-down kind of thing right it's not clear that that's uh, fully been managed so I don't know it seems like there might be some opportunity for some research or tools for for helping to manage these things a little bit better. I know we kind of struggled with, you know, like the um, the bash vulnerability mm -hmm. uh, in, in this area is, you know, in what circumstances could it really be exploited? But I don't know. And it's kind of, yeah. it's like Shellshock especially was really tricky to figure right. out all the types of avenues that you could exploit. Mm -hmm. So many people do their homegrown code and whatnot well, to just exactly, yeah. you know, execute something in a you know, CGI script or something. And mm -hmm. um, this may be a little bit more under control, like you know at least whether something that you're using is going to try to call right. out to image magic, whereas Bash was a little bit harder to figure out That's sometimes. That's very true. But still, there's probably lots of code base out there that's trying, that uses image magic mm -hmm. underneath, especially ones that do any kind of image galleries or any of that kind of stuff uh, out there on the web. One okay. is that there's actually libraries upon libraries that call image magic. So it may be two or three right. steps removed. That's a good point. So finding mm -hmm. it's probably going to be even harder than that. Yep, absolutely. So, you know, I kind of wonder, is there, and I'm kind of thinking out loud here, but is there a difference in the open source world in terms of patch management philosophies that need to be considered versus sort of the traditional, I'm buying this piece of software from this vendor and they come out with the regular. So I'm, just for sake of example, you know, Oracle comes out with their quarterly patches, which are, you know, it's a code base that's under their control compared to a situation or, you know, a proprietary code base compared to the open source world where you have lots of pieces and parts that have been interworked in different ways. Do you think folks should be thinking about their patch management processes differently in those two scenarios? Hmm. Well, I know that there are some people who will go out of their way to develop out-of-cycle patches on their own. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that I've heard of anybody trying to deploy it in a large environment, but, you know, if you've got one or two servers and you know that all you need to do the patch is comment this line of code that you're not using. Maybe that'll tide you over until the next official release when mm -hmm. you apply the real patch. So there's a little more agility there, but that comes necessarily with some risk. Yeah. If you don't have the time to figure out what your patch is actually doing and what the upstream effects are going to be. Yeah, or the impact on the applications might be. Yeah. Right. One of, the, one of the things I was thinking about when you said that is, while I'm all for using open source software, the concern I have is that I think there's better established channels for getting notification when there is a vulnerability from a real, like a 
a large vendor. So like mm -hmm. Oracle or Microsoft, when they have patches, you know that these patches are coming. Where Image Magic, I'm not going to know, mm -hmm. probably, even though I use it or it's an underlying thing. Hopefully, Red Hat or whoever Ubuntu, whoever sure. my underlying vendor is, is going to go fix it and give me a patch via that channel. But it's not quite as, in terms of a patching process and having that rigor and notification, I'm not quite sure I'm going to get be aware as much. You don't have a, a customer list for open source software if they've just gone and downloaded it from GitHub or from the Ubuntu repos or something like that. I think you don't have that, who do I have to tell? It's right. just, you know, yeah. who downloaded it? Oh, heck, these right. thousand IPs. Mm -hmm. right. What does that mean? Well, and I, it, so I think to your point, the, to the extent that you're drawing form from a vendor-provided package, you have that relationship, that vendor relationship that you're paying, you know, maintenance license for. That's really what you're paying for is to help have them help package it together. So mm -hmm. it helps to solve that. But to the extent that you deviate from it and just say, well, you know, I needed this package and it's not part of the Red Hat distribution. I'll just, you know, put it in there and and uh, then you're basically on your own. And so it's something I think folks need to be very conscious of. That is, when you go independent, you know, pulling from directly from the code base, or even something that's already been compiled, you're really on your own in terms of the support around that. Whereas, if you have a vendor relationship, you're, you know, basically what you, that's what you're paying the vendor to do is to mm -hmm. help make sure that you have the most current and support around that around those. I, that I wonder how you go about building the notification system for open source software. That'd be a pretty Herculean task. Managing all the packages and all well, the Well, if, if you become part of the forum as a user, I mean, the, right. the notification well, sure, process is effectively there, but you need to well, be part Well, let's take it, it in this case, Image Magic. You know, do you know you're using Image Magic? Would yeah. you know to sign up at a forum? Probably not. Yeah, probably not. But it, in this case, you would expect that, and I, I presume is the case, that if it's part of the, I'm just using Red Hat as a, you know, an example here, but if you're, if it's part of the Red Hat distribution, that it would be part of what they're providing in terms of uh, making sure that they have that software up to date as part of that distribution. Okay, so um, uh, what I thought we would do here, thank you, Jim, for that. <laughs> Thanks for this discussion, guys. I got a little distracted. So uh, what I thought we'd do next is, uh, you know, I, I recently read a book. Um, this is perhaps I an uncon- I have years. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, technically, technically, I didn't read a book. I read it off an iPad. Oh, so okay. <laughs> didn't actually have pages. I don't know if you really call it a book. But anyway, uh, sort of an unconventional uncon um, author for this book. This is uh, actually a book by Ted Koppel. Uh, it's called Lights Out, A Cyber Attack, A Nation Unprepared, Surviving the Aftermath. And so really what this book is about is uh, discussing the possibility of a cyber attack against the U.S. power industry or the U.S. power grid. It basically starts out talking a little bit about the motivation behind what an attack might be and how that really is somewhat of an imminent possibility that is uh, relationships uh, with uh, other countries, terrorist organizations, for example, tensions are growing with Russia. And so there's a possibility that there might be some motivation to uh, conduct the attack. You know, we don't know if it's, if it's gonna come about or not. Uh, and then secondly, the means that is, uh, there is, I mean, we, we spend every week talking about the lack of sufficient uh, cybersecurity in different situations, uh, IoT, the possibility of uh, just mistakes uh, leading to the possibility of a vulnerability. And um, I can't speak specifically about the power industry, uh, but certainly uh, if there are 
similar to other industries, there's a possibility that they have uh, vulnerabilities and could be vulnerable to attack. And then, John, just on, I think on our March 22nd show, uh, you uh, provided an update on the attack that occurred, I believe, in December 2015 against, right. the, against Ukraine the Ukraine power, power grid, grid. Right. Uh, which was, uh, I, I think the discussion that you had was that it was a confirmation that it was, in fact, a cyber attack that led to those outages. I believe you said you were going to unplug from the... Uh, Did I? <laughs> Well, I didn't do that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. So I didn't, live up to I didn't think you were really doing it. Uh, speaking seriously about that, but the you know the concept behind that that is they basically went to manual operations as a means to restore. Right. And so if you take that and perhaps apply it to the U.S. power grid, the question becomes, and the, these are really just uh, questions that are raised. You know, does that translate? into our environment, or is it actually a worse situation or is it a better situation? Is there more redundancy? It's not really clear. I'm not sure that anybody really knows the answer to yeah, that. I don't know that I know the answer, but I'm gonna just hazard a guess that the Ukraine power grid is a lot less complex and a lot smaller than the United States power and that's grid. A, and that's, that is, a, I think, And when you a, have increased fact, complexity, yes. that does not necessarily mean it's more secure either. That's um, right. Doesn't yes, necessarily. So. About that last yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, by definition, if you don't understand it, <laughs> it's probably not understand. secure. And uh, and so it, you know, I guess one of the things he brings out is this: Why is this topic not mainstream? Why is it not part of the political debates right now, the presidential debates? And uh, you know, I think he kind of points out that it's a complex topic. It's not one that most people are well connected with. And uh, it's also even, uh, he kind of points out that it's difficult to get agreement, you know, in discussions or debates in, in Congress on even simple topics. And so it, it, they tend to, you know, get the ones that are, I think, more sensational or, you know, create the most emotion. So, and then last but not least here is it still fundamentally is a theoretical scenario. That is, we haven't really experienced uh, such a scenario. And so... Uh, until it occurs, it's most likely that it's not going to get a whole lot of attention. So. Did he discuss the Ukraine grid, or was this book published prior to that? You know, I, I, I think I made it, automatically made the connection. He may, dis, in fact, discuss it in there, but I, to be honest, I don't remember. Because, I, mean, I mean, that was pretty recent. That <laughs> yes, was only I, I think he four actually or five did months make, ago. Yeah, I think he did. So, in any case, the, uh, secondly, you know, he talks a little bit more about the consequences of attack. And I think the significance here is that we tend to think of a powder outage and it's, you know, something that occurs for a little while and then the lights come back on and everybody's good. What he was trying to really kind of point out is that it could actually have a long-term effect. That is, and one example is uh, some of these very large transformers are very customized. It actually basically said that it, it would take about six months to replace one of these transformers. They're very you know, difficult to manufacture. They're manufactured overseas. They're very difficult to ship. Uh, the installation process takes a long time. And so you may actually have large regions of the country that are out without power for months and it, perhaps even a year or so. And so the implications of that in terms of you know, food supplies, where people might need to relocate to, how you do things, uh, gets much more complicated. And then he talks a lot about some organizations that try to be prepared for these things. And uh, so it's, a, it's an interesting read. I'll point out that New York Times actually had a relatively critical review of it, as I was sharing with you earlier. He really takes this uh, at least their, their opinion on it was that he, he took it from the point of view as a reporter 
in a scenario that hasn't really happened yet. You really have to take sort of an analytical view of things and uh, you know look at it a, a little bit differently and perhaps uh, present it a little different way. But I found it to be a valuable message that uh, I think more folks should take a look at. So in any case, uh, the book is out there. It's not a very long read. It's not a very expensive book worth taking a look at. So Jim, let's go over to you. And um, you know, we were talking about again, the, uh, the the widespread use of the uh, <laughs> help me here. Bash, <laughs> image uh, magic. The ma image, image magic, magic. yes, okay. the image magic, and uh, the relationship to uh, some of the the uh, other vulnerabilities. You know, Heartbleed was sort of the the yeah. beginning of all of this uh, widespread vulnerabilities activities. So, Jim, uh, there have been a couple of uh, updates or fixes to OpenSSL. Tell us a little more. Right, yeah. Uh, OpenSSL, you know, we've been familiar with for a long time, but the general public probably didn't really know about it until about two years ago with Heartbleed. They pre-announced last week that there would be two, uh, that they would be releasing some patches this week and at least two of them were what they called high severity. And so now the patches have come out and I took a, a look at them. And as I said, there were two that they listed as high severity and then several more, four, five, six, something like that, um, that were lower severity uh, that came out. The two high severity ones, one of them was a padded oracle, basically an in injection vulnerability. Uh, if you could inject some packets in there, it, you could eventually potentially decode some of the encrypted traffic. Hmm. It turns out that there was, when they patched the Lucky 13 uh, vulnerability back in 2013, their fix actually allowed for some timing attacks and so they fixed that with this update the other high severity vulnerability was actually in two parts but it was an asn1 encoding and decoding issue asn1 for those who aren't familiar stands for abstract syntax notation one and we've talked about it on and off on the show, especially related to SNMP vulnerabilities way back when. ASN1 is a, is a standard for describing rules and structures for representing, encoding, transmitting, and decoding data in telecom and computer networks. And it can be kind of complicated. And the issue here was with the, the encoding and the decoding I won't go into the, all of the details of, of how it works. Um, just suffice it to say there's a interplay between two vulnerabilities that either one by themselves can't be used uh, to exploit it. They could potentially be used as a minor denial of service. But, okay. but when used together, could potentially allow memory corruption and remote code execution. So those, uh, one of those had actually been fixed about a year ago and they didn't realize the security implications of it until they discovered this other vulnerability that when used in conjunction allowed the remote codex or well, potential remote code execution. So mm -hmm. there are new versions of open SSL 
1.0.1T and 1.0.2H. Anything before 1.0.1 support stopped for that back in December. So if you're using OpenSSL, hopefully you're using it, you know, in the, from the repos from your Linux distribution, and you'll get the updates when from those pretty much automatically. If you're using, mm-hmm. you know, if you're compiling it from source yourself, you have you know, the issue we just talked about a few minutes ago. Make sure you go if you're compiling it yourself by source. Make sure you go update, get a new version in there. All right, very good. So uh, you know, it's funny you, you mentioned ASN, and um, it it reminded me of uh, the true type fonts, and they keep coming back <laughs> over and over and over again. Um, you know, when ASN one. I think first came out, that was one of the, uh, just even creating a compiler or a decoder for the ASN was a, was a bit of a challenge. So it actually isn't all that surprising that um, to this day we're still having uh, issues with the decoders and uh, potential vulnerabilities associated with that. And that, that was about the least of anybody's concern at the time, many years ago. That was a time when networking bandwidth was quite a bit more of a premium. And so a lot of the coding that was done was actually at a bit level and so it ended up making things a lot more complex and, you know, with the intent of making the actual data stream more compact. But um, I digress. <laughs> so <laughs> data breaches are a daily occurrence. And um, so tell us a little bit about this particular one. So this one is an interesting story. And this may be a case of not of a data breach that's being counted twice. Maybe mm. we'll start there. So IBI Times and the Register are both reporting on a breach of a bank in the UAE, apparently 10 gigabytes worth of files belonging to this bank, including customer information, emails, things like that, database contents, uh, were posted by a group called Boskurt Hackers out of Turkey. Mm. Now, they were also claiming credit for attacking Qatar National Bank last week. And the interesting thing about this is that the register is claiming that the data that they are posting is old data from a previous breach. Mm. Now, if people remember the name Hacker Booba, who we may have actually covered on the show, a lot of the data appears to be rehashed data from that leak. Now, it's not uncommon for hacker groups to claim credit mm-hmm. for having hacked the target using fake data that they'll post on Pastebin or wherever. Mm-hmm. 10 gigabytes is a lot of data to be faking but it's not impossible if the data is already out there, if they've just simply repackaged it. Exactly, yeah. And that, I think that, you know, it, um, I don't think this is, it, this is new. A lot of folks that are trying to, have tried forging their claims with uh, using other data and, you Absolutely. know, kind of assuming that they're not going to get caught. <laughs> or at least I assume that's the case. But. Well, I think, I think that's something that a lot of, I think, reporters and maybe... Uh, uh, chief security officer should be paying attention to mm-hmm. is that there's a very good possibility that whatever leaks are in the news are are not real or at least not fresh. Right. So they should be doing their own due diligence or somebody within the organization should to ensure that they're not reporting on something and giving somebody credit for something they didn't actually do. Mm-hmm. Whether that, that's credit or infamy, it, it, it shouldn't be easy for people to manipulate the media like this and get claims and fame just for reposting some files they downloaded a couple months back. Yeah, well, that's actually a very good point. You know, that's one of the reasons we have a daily internal report that we do to try to get uh, information out to our executives about 
information that's in the news as well as things that we need to be paying attention to internally mm -hmm. and to uh, help convey you know that you know that this is this is something that's being claimed but it's actually you know like this attack was um, claimed to be successful by the attackers you can't believe that mm -hmm. and uh, to try to put some uh, some context around it so that people understand uh, the difference between what's being reported what they might see in the media and what the actual mm -hmm. truth might be well I would even bring up um, in the last week there was that story with uh, hold security mm -hmm. where it seems that several of the organizations that were claimed in that breach that as the victims are coming out and saying this is either old data or invalid data for our mm -hmm. own services so we're not actually the targets i mean if you've got a, a service and i'll take for example gmail you know if you find in a data dump somewhere you know username at gmail.com and a password it doesn't mean that gmail was the target mm -hmm. any site that signs up with an, an email address as your username it could, probably, it could be any one of those sites at that point. That's absolutely so true. So I think yeah. that's something that people should pay attention to. If you have a long list of you know, Google.com or Mail.ru, they're not necessarily the target. Don't jump to those sorts of conclusions without mm -hmm. doing your due diligence. Yeah, very good point. So it takes a little investigation to find out what's, uh, what's the appropriate context to be interpreting that data. Absolutely. OK, John, let's uh, talk with you a little bit here. The um, Android. Yeah. Mobile Finance. malware, and um, <laughs> this one has a couple of little twists that are special here. So give us a scoop. Um, so we've seen uh, Android-based malware before. In fact, mm -hmm. that's probably where most of the mobile malware kind of uh, area is. There isn't so much in some of these other uh, devices. But in any event, uh, this one, and this is kind of a recent one uh, within the past few days, certainly only within this past week. And I think it's been taken down as of either last night or today off of the uh, Google Play Store. But somebody was able to get a few apps onto the Google Play Store. This is being called Viking Horde, the name of this malware family, because the main app that had this Trojanizer was infected with this malware is called Viking Jump. It's a little game or something. And there are apparently about 100,000 downloads of it. And as far as I can tell, I. I looked around the Google Play Store. I don't think that these are repackaged versions of other legitimate apps. I think they're, although the simple 2048, there's about a bazillion of those out there, so it's very hard to tell. Mm -hmm. But in any event, once it installs, it tries to get root privileges, which a lot of people notice and say, well, why is this thing asking for root privileges? But a lot of people don't know that what that means, so they just accept it. Mm -hmm. And then I'll start contacting a command and control. There's a couple of interesting things about this, which we've seen in some other families of Android malware before. It turns the device into a proxy node, so that's kind of similar to the Droid Not Compatible, thanks to Jim for reminding me of the name of it, which it basically kind of creates kind of a network of all these handsets, and then the uh, botnet operator can use those to use all those devices as proxy nodes. Um, and they're using that for their click fraud activity. So primarily they're using this for click fraud. They need a robust set of source IPs. They're also um, proxying through other proxies, I think, as well, uh, to kind of obfuscate so that the mm -hmm. click frauds will actually count in their favor. It also is doing some premium SMS texting that's been reported. I, I'm not sure if they were able to, uh, during the malware analysis, see that. But some users have complained online that once they installed it, they got hit for like a $5 SMS text, one of those mm -hmm. premium numbers. 
and then it tried to like cover up his tracks so that it ever sent that SMS yeah. uh, by deleting it from the Now, history. I believe some providers have basically discontinued supporting premium SMS services, partly oh, because of the fraudulent activities that have been associated with it. So, okay. Yeah. Oh, well, that's a good thing. And then they did kind of mention that, you know, because the way this is architected, um, it also has an updater component that gets installed mm -hmm. where it's going and downloading new, it checks to see if there's new malware to download or new executables. So they could pull down additional executables onto the handsets kind of on demand, issue another command, say go update yourself and go install this. Mm -hmm. So they could kind of pivot this and turn it into for DDoS or other spamming type of activity um, or even other malware delivery activities if they wanted to. Uh, but mm -hmm. To this date, they haven't really seen them doing that with it. Right. Um, I did list some of the C2 information there that they were able to get out. They're all kind of related to ad exchange in some way, variations of the name not spelt right there. So just take a look at those. If you see activity of those domains, they look like they're still active as far as I can see as of us talking yeah. right now. Um, I didn't see a whole lot of activity headed towards them, um, but the ones that I did were from mobile uh, service oh, providers. Devices, yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, anyway, just one of those things to be aware of. It's another, you know, it's the same kind of thing we've seen before, but it kind of was getting a lot of press mm -hmm. uh, today, so I thought I'd uh, cover it. Well, I, I thought the thing that was a little bit special about this is we're generally saying stay on the mainstream app stores. Right. And this is a case where somehow these these particular Trojan apps were able to not only sneak into the mainstream app store, but were able to stick around for a month or so at least. And I think that was a significant, as you mentioned, about 100,000 downloads of the, uh, the Viking Jump app. Right. And, um, the yeah, other ones the had much lower, yeah. uh, much lower takes on them and also had a very much lower reputation. Mm -hmm. uh, but the Viking Jump one, I don't know if they somehow seeded it to get it more trusted. But It, sounds, it looks like something that, um, that kids might be more... Yeah, I'm not sure. It looked like a game, one of those little yeah. scroller games. Right. So. Well, that's, a, that's a good question, though. What, what can users do in order to avoid these kinds of apps? I mean, to me, the one thing I could suggest is trying to avoid the obvious clones of games. Like, if mm -hmm. you can do your research before you download something and say, okay, I'm looking for a game name here. Maybe, there's, maybe there is a legitimate Viking Jump game app, and it's got mm -hmm. a slightly different name. Try and figure out who the, the legitimate creator is and download directly from their portion of the store instead of yeah. looking for a bargain or a free version like the free Angry Birds that we right, see once right. in a while. Yeah, well, that's a, a very good point. I, th I think another aspect of this is, as John sort of pointed out, is be, you know, scrutinize what it's asking to do. And mm -hmm. I, 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 my recommendation is to reflect that in the reviews. That is, if they're asking for permissions that aren't just right, give them a slandering in the reviews. And then, you know, it'll, at least perhaps will deter some others, but I suspect that some of the investigation into what things belong in the store and what things aren't, aren't are, are going to be based on some of that feedback. Yeah, and I would think probably Google, hopefully, is using some of that feedback to kind of smartly figure out, hey, a lot of people are complaining about this ad. Maybe we should take a closer look exactly. at it again or take a second look at it mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah, um, at least that's my thought. It's to and a lot of people had complained about these apps, so... Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of negative comments. So, <laughs> okay. Well, pay attention to the comments when when yes. you're buying stuff that's, as well. That's the thing. Yeah, look at the comments. <laughs> Even before if it you is install. free, right? So, uh, okay, Matt, let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, rootkits. 
Well, not rootkits. <laughs> so not rootkits, but root backdoors. Yeah, right, backdoors. And absolute winners of root backdoors. Uh, this one comes to us from the register, and I thought it was just worth it because it's. Sometimes you find out there's a backdoor in something and it's a little bit like the developers have, have gone out of the way to sort of hide that it's there or mm -hmm. even maybe make it a little bit harder to find. Apparently somebody on the Armbian forums, and Armbian is a ARM version of, I guess, Debian, uh, found that some firmware for certain devices by a company named Allwinner, which is a great, great name for some serious fail, um, <laughs> there is a backdoor that any process on these devices can use this backdoor gives complete root privileges to any process as long mm. as they write to slash proc slash sunshi debug slash sunshi debug with the string root my device. Root my device. So you couldn't be more obvious. <laughs> uh, and it's pretty awful. It might be remotely exploitable if other if any processes are using slash proc and expose themselves to the network. Mm -hmm. It affects a number of ARM devices. The most notable that I had actually heard of is the Orange Pi, which is a variant, uh, something like an, a Raspberry Pi, but from a different mm -hmm. manufacturer. And there is a patch out from some vendors, but not all. So okay. I think that the the, um, the victim population is probably going to be fairly small for this one, but still worth noting. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, it's called root my device. I mean, it, it just I got a kick out of it. It's so it's so bad. It's so yeah. over. Yeah. I mean, that's I mean, we should talk about about I guess developer backdoors. I mean, these are the sorts of things that I guess should have made it out of. You know, the software testing at some point, someone would have noticed. I mean, with a string like root my rope device, how can you miss it? How can so you? What absolutely. Is all winner? I guess I missed the context. That's a firmware that's based on Armbian? Is that the idea? Or? I believe that the Arm all winner is the processor and they, they provide firmware for it. I wasn't exactly clear. Okay. On it. I was just wondering if it was in Armbian itself or if it was somebody think, like did I their think, own spin off of it I or think something. the RMB and developers are the ones that noticed and posted about this, that this was actually a possibility. Mm -hmm. So Okay. But it might have been through analysis of, of what Allwinner was providing when they were developing for RMB and. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, the tendency is we think about vulnerabilities that is inadvertent problems in systems, mm -hmm. and we tend to think about attackers as being, you know, the, the malicious actors that take advantage of these vulnerabilities or some other, you know, sidestepping things. At least in my mind, I tend to overlook the possibility that somebody, there, there's some in-between space there. These back doors are ending up in there somehow mm -hmm. for some reason. We tend to try to you know, say, well, maybe it was a testing thing or debugging thing or something they forgot to take it out. But uh, when you see an example like this, it doesn't really look like a testing scenario. It looks like somebody was really intending to put something in there mm. that would be Pervasive. I mean, that's just... It, it's a just, possibility. Uh, From my own perspective, if I were a malware author, I would never name it, root my device. I would take a little <laughs> few steps to obfuscate the fact that that existed. That's a, that's a mm -hmm. big if. I am not yeah. a malware author. Make but, it secure my device or something like so that. Yes, make it pretty <laughs> awesome. Um, but And I'm not sure that I, if I were a malware author I, that I'd use the sunshi underscore debug. I, that's true. Try to hide it some other way. All right. Well, in any case, I think this is this type of thing is going to continue. It kind of it it kind of plays into the um, uh, to the extent that open source is available, making sure that we have, uh, or that the source is available, making sure that there's a good scrutiny of the code associated with those, mm -hmm. and uh, some pretty good vulnerability testing associated with things as well, making sure there aren't points, ports that aren't open that that don't belong to be, for example. But there have been a lot of these embedded devices. Awful lot of devices that have that, uh, back obviously down. intentional backdoors have been yep. put in them, and how they've gotten in there, and sometimes these vendors aren't really 
giving very good explanations of how they get in there, but I have never seen know. a good explanation. For I know it, it's no. strange. <laughs> is, is oops a good explanation? No, that's not okay. a good explanation. All right. But I mean, like, look at um, what's the fifty-three four thirteen? Yeah, yeah, the fifty-three four thirteen. Right, home like, router back door. That's yeah, and but and back doors have been discovered discovered in almost, I can't say almost all, but a number of name yeah, brand number of popular name brand ones. ones. Right. That um, in in most cases have since been corrected, but those devices that are already out there, they don't really get patched, and so it still exists. So, uh, you know, I guess the next item here that we wanted to talk about is um, there was an article. This was actually by uh, Ruder Jansen from, uh, he's a senior forensic IT expert at Fox IT. And uh, he, he posted a blog. He said that the Fox CERT was involved in uh, several investigations related to ransomware. Typically, when we talk about ransomware, we've seen email campaigns that try to get you to click on a right. link where it might download or it might be actually the payload in the email or something along those lines. And uh, that would tend to infect desktops. Whereas uh, this is a case where they'd seen uh, ransomware where they were through compromised uh, desktop servers, RDP uh, uh, servers. And so the question comes, you know, how did they get into these things? Well, uh, their investigation and logs basically showed that the attackers got access through brute force password guessing, uh, usernames and passwords on these desktop servers uh, that were accessible from the internet. Now, in some of these cases, they may not, in fact, be a desktop. They might be a server that, you know, had RDP enabled for remote administration. And so this would give the attackers a foothold into the enterprise, perhaps, in a way that they might have otherwise, perhaps through an email, and the opportunity and to, uh, to be able to do sort of a more targeted attack, persist for a, lo uh, a longer period of time, and perhaps um, you know, establish a, a real attack against that business. And so uh, it was an interesting uh, sort of perspective where they are, in fact, actors that are taking this approach to things. And uh, so we need to be aware of that and you know, make sure that any uh, remote access that's exposed to the internet certainly has uh, proper security controls. In my opinion, uh, exposing something like this to the internet without uh, two-factor authentication is uh, probably a bas bad practice in, in general. And uh, if it is anything less than that, there really needs to be a control in place to make sure that password guessing can't continue. Right. And, and of course, <laughs> it's got to have a good password in the first place. You know, my observation would also be that if an attacker is able to get into an RDP server, um, it's probably going to be a lot easier to laterally move to other higher value targets right. within other file servers and things that might have really good data, like mm -hmm. in the healthcare industry or wherever, really, um, to do a lot more damage than if they, you know, compromise a desktop and then they've got to s, you know, elevate their privileges and laterally move to some other. Mm -hmm. um, and usually they don't do that anyway. Um, mm -hmm. Not that they couldn't, but. Yep. Uh, in ransomware cases, we haven't. No, you're absolutely right. So, uh, for example, uh, they could take advantage of their foothold on a server, crack administrative passwords, and use that to perhaps move laterally to other right. machines where you might not have uh, that same structure in the uh, desktop environment. So, right. And make sure you run point. antivirus on your 
RDP servers and your file servers, because <laughs> when they dump their toolkits on there, like Mimi Cats and all this stuff, you want it to light up like a Christmas tree. You want to know. <laughs> well, that's the nice thing about a server, though, is, is a, you can assume, hopefully, that the things that are running on your server, there's a very small subset of them. You shouldn't mm -hmm. be expecting anything else. If you can actually go to the lengths of you know, application whitelisting, mm -hmm. you know, as soon as anything much. changes, that should light up immediately. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. You're absolutely right. So anyway, uh, this slide is actually from last week. It's the uh, basically showing over the last six months the 10-day uh, moving average on the activity probing port 3389. That's that remote desktop protocol port. And you can see that there has been an upward trend over the last six months or so, as there has been in the ransomware campaigns. I, I'm not going to attempt to make any correlation between the two here, but that certainly uh, is an avenue of interest. And you know we're talking tens of millions of probes per hour uh, on this particular port. It's not, um, you know, you're not going to have an RDP server sitting out there very long before somebody else is discovering it and uh, perhaps conducting attacks against it. Uh, following on here, scan probes on port 1720 TCP. This is H323, basically uh, call control capabilities for uh, video conferencing or perhaps uh, even voice over IP. And in this particular case, is a very abrupt and significant increase in the amount of probing activities taking place here, again, in the order of tens of millions per hour. And uh, the majority of the probes here are from a single address in Russia. So, um, you know, you know, we've seen probing activity from Russia, but this is, uh, I mean, this is, it, it seems to be on the rise. Uh, and that's just a, uh, you know, not a scientific, but a, uh, a subjective observation. Uh, next item here, scan probes on port 53 TCP that's uh, associated with DNS. Now, typically DNS is using UDP, but in this case, it's uh, probing on TCP, they're both associated with, you know, ports used for DNS. Uh, we're looking at 30 days of activity here. And again, the majority of the probes from a single address in Russia. Uh, I don't know if there's any correlation between the DNS probing activity and the uh, probing activity associated with uh, 1720, but uh, there perhaps is. And the next item here, scan probes on port 57769 TCP. This isn't really associated with any application that I'm aware of. Looking at this in a little more detail, it turns out there were basically two addresses in China that were originating these, basically this flow activity. They were on the same subnet, so you know different addresses but relatively close together. And all of the packets were SYNAC packets, and the source port was consistently 8081 TCP. My interpretation: this is likely backscatter from denial service attacks. That is, it was probably a SYN attack. Uh, from spoof sources and uh, causing the backscatter to go to uh, um, you know, a variety of addresses and making it uh, look like it's scanning activity uh, from our algorithms or detection algorithms point of view. So uh, that activity is likely uh, denial but service they had a fixed Fixed source port fixed and fixed destination port. port yeah. in that case, yeah. It sounds like they're writing something that's not behaving normally within the stack, or they're doing something. And many of these flooding attacks, they, uh, they bypass the stack. They're crafting packets basically from scratch because it bypasses any, of the, anyway, any right? of the timeouts or checks and things like that. You can just spray them out really fast. Mm. No, that's, that's, good, that's true. I'm just thinking that certain tools, um, depending on how they get installed, they don't offer you that ability to do mm -hmm. that. So yeah, that's might, absolutely true. Might point so. to how or what these origins actually are. Maybe in the, the the grand scheme of things, it probably doesn't help much. But you know, if you you might be able to confirm it later on when you mm -hmm. find these guys. Yeah. 
So looking at the top 10 most pro ports, uh, not a lot of real movement here. Um, you know, port 23 is at the top of the list. We have a pretty broad set of others here that are uh, contributing to, um, to the activity. Some movement upward on port 123 UDP. We'll take a little bit of a closer look at that in a couple of minutes here. And then looking at uh, the most sources doing the probing, well, port 53 UDP moved up the list, uh, about eight slots. Otherwise speaking, it's relatively stable. So let's take a, take a look at a couple of the things here. Oh, and by the way, um, you know, I haven't showed this in a while, so I thought it would be uh, uh, worth showing. This is the probe aggression ratio. Basically, it's measuring the number of probes that are emitting relative to the number of sources that are creating those probes. And it, it actually kind of points to the notion that you're referring to, Matt, is that uh, are they using the regular, T, regular TCP stack if they're probing on a TCP port, whereas once you open a, uh, basically open a connection, it's, there are timeouts involved in whether it's actually responding and things like that, or whether it's perhaps a customized you know, packet crafter really just kind of spraying it out and then perhaps using another process entirely to, uh, to, to look for the responses. So sure. if you see on port 23 here, generally speaking, it's less aggressive. That is, it's probably using uh, the tools or it, um, another possibility is that it's the IoT where the processors aren't as high performance and uh, taking a little longer for them to generate the output. Whereas uh, perhaps on port 22, where it might be Linux machines, you know, servers that are being compromised through SSH compromises or brute force password guessing, higher performance, uh, still perhaps using the stack there. And then in some cases, uh, we've seen uh, higher numbers actually closer to about um, you know, seven on this uh, pro-regression ratio, where it clearly has been uh, customized stacks that are used in that activity. So. Um, you know, not a lot of surprises here, but uh, it is an interesting, you know, perspective to look at. And then also looking at the reconnaissance index over the last two years, uh, the reconnaissance index is basically a normalized view of how many probes and how many sources are contributing to those probes in aggregate. And uh, as you can see, you know, there's basically been an upward trend over the last couple of years here, but not significantly upward trend. We like to see this going down over time unlike the Dow Jones or the uh, NASDAQ where we like to see it going up over time, uh, this is one we like to see going down. So looking at scan pros on port 23 TCP, Telnet over the last 90 days, uh, no big changes here. It is kind of on the downward trend. We did see a little bit of a spike in terms of the number of sources that were doing probing activity, but that seems to have tailed off as well. So hopefully that'll continue in the downward trend. Looking at scan probes on port 123 UDP, that's network time protocol. And you know, Jim, you covered last week a number of patches associated with NTP. And I suspect that there may be a relationship between this upward trend we've seen over the last month or so and some of the patches that have come about. Do you have any thoughts on that? We were talking last week about the possibility that there might be some additional probing mm -hmm. because of those vulnerabilities. So. I think it's yep. a distinct possibility. So uh, we have certainly been seeing a, an upward trend. No, you know, no big changes or big spikes, but uh, an upward trend over the last, um, it's been relatively over a month or so. So make sure you, if you uh, have NTP servers exposed to the internet that those are properly patched and protected. And then scan sources on port 53 UDP. This is uh, DNS over the last 90 days. There is a spike of activity is actually a little over a week ago. In this case, it was on source port 80 UDP, and uh, it was actually 
associated with a subnet in Russia. So, uh, you know, basically a relatively large address space, but uh, covering across that address space. So it appears that this is actually backscatter associated with a uh, reflective denial of service attack. I shouldn't actually call it backscatter, probably the request side of the activity associated with this reflective denial of service attack. There's a possibility it could be reconnaissance activity as well, so you know, to be able to uh, conduct these types of uh, denial of service attacks. But I'm gonna hedge my bets on uh, backscatter associated with that, or the request side of it, I should say. So that's our show for today. I'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. And you can find AT&T Threat Track on the ATT Tech channel. It's uh, available on YouTube as well as on uh, iTunes as a podcast. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. Um, I'd like to thank you, Jim, for joining us today. Thank you, John. Thank you, Matt. I'm Brian Rexroad. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.